Welcome everyone to this week's edition of the Commercial Real Estate One-on-One Meetup Group. For those of you guys who are tuning in for the first time, we actually started this group back in April of 2020, kind of in response to COVID. And ever since then, we've become kind of we've been trying to become kind of the watering hole when it comes to learning about the commercial real estate industry. And today we have the honor of hosting Lonnie Hendry, the the recently uh, 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 you've recently got a promotion to the Chief Product Officer of TREP. Uh, so first off, congratulations on that. I actually connected uh, with Lonnie. Uh, he did a kind of a market update uh, for us over here in Kentucky, uh, kind of our regional update uh, a little bit la last year. And provided such great insights. And I, you know, obviously you're connected with Bo Barron, who's a friend of ours, a uh, friend of mine as well. So, you know, again, there's a lot of connection points there. And ultimately, we thought it would be great for you to come on the show to kind of talk a little bit about uh, a topic that I know is obviously a very prevalent one in the commercial real estate landscape, and I'm sure a lot of people don't necessarily know the nuances of, which is the CMBS market. So uh, first off, welcome, Lonnie. Yeah, thank you for having me. Looking forward to the discussion today. And uh, yeah, I enjoyed my time in Kentucky and I uh, got to meet a lot of nice folks and, um, you know, hoping to, uh, to add some value today and talk through some commercial real estate. I love, I love doing that. Absolutely. Well, first off, uh, I guess before we get uh, kind of in the meat, meat and potatoes of the actual discussion, I figured it would probably be a good opportunity for you to kind of share a little bit about yourself, your background, and kind of what got you into the commercial real estate space. Sure. Yeah. So uh, I've been a lifelong commercial real estate guy. Um, after high school and in college, I worked full time for a local multifamily owner operator developer. So I really cut my teeth in the commercial space on the multifamily side. So did a lot of luxury high-end class a development bought land got entitlements put up the the properties leased them up and then we sold them off and actually had a little stint doing some low-income housing tax credit on-site property management so you know have an affinity for multifamily. going back to my early days uh, through education you know undergrad grad school focused all in real estate so i have a master's in real estate graduate certificate real estate development and then um, have been teaching at the college level since 2013. Uh, own a small little brokerage shop here in Texas, um, and then uh, you know joined Trap about five years ago, um, and really have enjoyed working at Trap more than anywhere else. Like it's it's an amazing place where we connect data um, to action with practitioners in the marketplace, and so we really turn the insights into something that helps people generate more revenue, create new opportunities for themselves, make better, faster decisions, and so um, you know really enjoyed that, and then kind of. Concurrently with you starting this, uh, March of 2020, we started a podcast at Trap. And so we're like 241 episodes in. I'm one of the co-hosts on the weekly show. It comes out every Thursday. We're at 1.2 million listens. Um, and so if you haven't checked us out, I'd, I'd ask that you do. It's uh, just Trepwire uh, Weekend Review Podcast. You can get on any of the major streaming services. So kind of a lifelong real estate guy. I love it. I talk it. I teach it. I live it. Um, so, um, you know, ready to jump in. Yeah, absolutely. And I can I can attest to the the content that they produce with Tripwire. I'm I'm a regular listener myself and you could definitely tell that you have the heart of a teacher. Um and, and again, it's part of that, you know, the the way that you just operate. So, you know, I would highly encourage you guys if you haven't had a chance to listen to Tripwire, follow along. There's a lot of really good information that you guys share and really great dialogue. Uh so uh, definitely worth checking out. So you know, as part of the the discussion, oftentimes with the podcast is we, this is a very topic centric podcast. So we'll have people talk about you know all different varieties of different verticals within commercial real estate. And today, kind of the focal discussion is going to be related to CMBS. So to kind of create or set the landscape, could you kind of share 
exactly what CMBS is, and then maybe we can maybe go into some of the mechanics of it uh, so that the audience members understand uh, what we're discussing. Sure, yeah. So at a core, CMBS is just an acronym that stands for Commercial Mortgage-Backed Securities. So, um, you know, the CMBS market really took flight in the early 1990s as a new type of investment vehicle for real estate. It's very similar to, say, a REIT, where, you know, as an individual investor, you can buy shares of publicly traded REITs. Therefore, you get some exposure to real estate through the REIT investment, but you don't necessarily have to be an owner-operator. You don't have to have requisite skills to actually be an investor. You're, you're effectively just looking at the underlying, um, you know, the, the REIT itself, Simon Properties or, or, or some others, and saying, hey, we believe in their thesis and we want to go ahead and throw some money in, into that investment vehicle. CMBS is very similar where you have a bunch of individual mortgage loans that get pulled up into a security and it effectively gets traded as a bond on the on the secondary market. So the CMBS market creates liquidity uh, for commercial real estate loans, and it's an investable asset uh, that really took off in the 90s. And here we are in the mid you know 2020s and uh, still growing today. I mean, it ebbs and flows, you know, in terms of issuance and other things as the macro environment changes. Um, but at a, at a core, it's really just the pooling of commercial real estate loans. Um, into a securitization that gets traded on the marketplace. And so um, TREP was kind of unique in right place, right time when that market uh, opened up. So in the early 90s, uh, BlackRock had a stake in TREP at the time, and they were convinced that this uh, CMBS market was going to really take off. And so they actually uh, wanted to create a, a third party that could bring transparency to the markets. And so TREP was actually written into the reporting structure for all of the CMBS loans. And so that's how we've been, you know, fairly synonymous with the CMBS marketplace since its inception. And we have, you know, probably the single largest repository of property level income and expense financial data um, piped through our system because we were actually written into the reporting structure at the inception. Um, and so we're we're probably, you know, most synonymous with with the CMBS world from a, a data vendor perspective. We've been there since day one. Absolutely. And you guys track other uh, products as well, correct? Um, yeah. Yeah. So we, we've over the years, we've evolved as the market has. So, um, you know, call it 10 years ago, we started a couple of different data consortia. So we have a, a bank balance sheet consortium called uh, Taller, which is another acronym. It just stands for uh, TREPS Anonymized Loan Level Repository. So we have lenders across the U.S. that actually give us their um, loan data every quarter. We go through a process of anonymizing that. But it provides really good insights into um, trends and transaction activity across the U.S. So you can see, you know, at a zip code level, uh, cap rate trends, occupancy trends, expense ratio, um, debt yield uh, parameters on the lending side. And we have a very similar consortium with the life insurance lenders as well called Life Comps. So we actually produce a total return index across the life insurance lending space. Um, and so we have a really... Kind of a 360 view of the debt markets um you know predominantly with cmbs and then more recently with the bank lending and the um, and the life insurers that makes sense for sure so so just to kind of highlight the mechanics of the cmbs market so really what it is is it's a grouping of a variety of different commercial loans that are packaged together and sold on a secondary market to some investors which then provides liquidity back to the lenders so it kind of is a cycle where you issue a note package it all together, sell it off in the secondary market. 
is is there is there any is there any comparison to like a Fannie Mae Freddie Mac type of scenario or how, I, I guess if you could explain a little bit on that I think yeah would help yeah very very similar so Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac actually have uh, CMBS structures so Freddie Mac has what they call like the K deal structure it's the exact same scenario so this is not unique to commercial real estate I mean you have RMBS which is just residential mortgage backed securities it's the same effective mechanical process the the nuance is just with commercial loans the size of those loans generally are, are significantly more than residential so you know in the heyday you might have a thousand or fifteen hundred residential loans in an rmbs uh, you might end up with 70 or 100 loans in the cmbs just because the loan volume the size is so much larger but a lot of the fannie mae freddie mac multifamily gets securitized and sold in the same same exact mechanism um, and so we actually track all of the GSE lending in that capacity as well. So we have all the Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac information. And it's really interesting that that liquidity component um, has been very beneficial for the markets at large. Um, and so it's, it's, a, it's a great tool when things are done effectively and efficiently. Heading into 2007, there was a lot of challenge with the rating agencies and others, the way they were compensated was really based on volume. So you you got ratings and so forth that maybe weren't reflective of the underlying collateral. And so if you watch the movie, The Big Short, or you, you kind of go back to those times, it explains a lot about just the securitization process. Coming out of that, there were a lot of lessons learned um, and they've really revamped what we call CMBS 2.0 now. And so underwriting standards are much more stringent. And we've seen, even with this disruption in the current environment, there hasn't been significant losses um, and we haven't seen liquidity or capital dry up like we saw, you know, heading out of, of 2007. So, no, for sure. So, so I, kind of in that same vein regarding the driving forces in the CMBS market. So if, as we, as we're starting to, as we're recording this, we're currently in the beginning of 2024. So we've gone through a period of somewhat market dislocation for a variety of different industries, but commercial real estate obviously was no different. So as far as what, what the driving factors or the, the you know, if you had to say, okay, what are the co couple driving factors that, that drive how CMBS, the CMBS markets flow, what would you say would be the, the driving factors? Yeah, so there's a couple of things that make CMBS unique. The primary difference between CMBS lending and say like traditional bank loan at your regional or community bank would be that CMBS loans by definition are non-recourse. So you're not signing a personal guarantee when you take out a CMBS loan. Um, which is great for borrowers. They prefer that. They don't want to have to have a personal guarantee if they don't have to. Um, and it, it creates an incentive for people to use CMBS as a lending mechanism. Now, there's some, some nuance there in the sense that because you're not providing a personal guarantee um, and these things get traded on a secondary market, there's a level of required disclosure and transparency around the loans that you might not have with a traditional bank loan. So that's where we come into play. So every quarter, the owner of the, the building or the borrower, the sponsor, is effectively required to supply their income and expense data to the lender. That lender then supplies that data to TREP, and then that's how the traders get access to the underlying collateral information to make informed trade decisions. So you're not personally liable like you would be in a community bank scenario or, or other type of lender scenario, but you are providing additional insight into real-time operations at the property level um and so that's that's one wrinkle you know i think it it creates viability for this sector because people like the the non-recourse component the other thing that the cmbs benefits from and we're kind of coming out of this part of the cycle is when interest rates are low 
traditional CMBS loans are 10 year terms. Um, so you get 10 year fixed rate money that you can lock in for an extended period of time is viewed very favorably. Um, with the disruption or dislocation that we've seen over the last you know year and a half or so with interest rates spiking, it's definitely made locking in long-term fixed rate debt way less appealing. Um, so we've actually seen a slight pivot in the CMBS market where last year they started offering a five-year option where you can do a five-year conduit um, CMBS um, bond and effectively you lock in the rates for five years instead of 10. I think that was a really smart move and an attempt to kind of capture still some of that interest in the sector, um, but without locking people into 10-year notes with with rates the way they were was was not appealing at all. Absolutely. And, and when you refer to these 10-year terms, I mean, so, you know, how how is the CMBS market work in, in the from a refinance standpoint? Because obviously you're trading these securities on a secondary market. So does that affect your ability to then, you know, pivot if you need to pivot uh, with that note? Like, how does that, how are those mechanics? Yeah, so that's a great question. And it's uh, the securities, since they're, they're traded as bonds, effectively the the servicers of these deals they're looking out for the best interest of the bond holders right so if somebody wants to refinance out of of the deal um traditional cmbs are are, are static pools of loans so they're not actively managed you're not trading collateral in and out so it's not like you can take a loan out of the pool and replace it with another loan there are some securitized products like the commercial real estate uh, clo market where they do have some managed pool components but in a traditional CMBS, the 70 loans that started off on day one of that 10-year note have to be the same 70 loans at the end. If they want to refinance out or they sell the property out, um, then you have to pay you know, yield maintenance or there's prepayment penalties or defeasance. Um, those things are, are built into the structure so that those bondholders get made whole on the interest payments. So there is some capability to refi out of a CMBS loan or there's some capability to sell the asset and for the new buyer to to you know bring their own financing in but it's not without some make whole provision through either yield maintenance prepayment or uh, or defeasance that makes sense yeah, for sure so it, it kind of it helps with the the logic what behind what what which options to pursue if you are in fact looking at some of these opportunities and like I had mentioned kind of offline a big contingent of our listenership is in the brokerage space and obviously are transacting on a regular basis. So from a, you know, advisor advisorship standpoint, a lot of times we just want to make sure we're educated about the options out there and the pros and cons of pursuing different options uh, as a result of that. So one of the kind of the, the, the things that I had questions on is obviously since COVID, we've had some in, uh, interesting times in the brokerage space. Obviously there was a period of time where there was massive, you know, dislocation and that no, no one knew it was happening, you know, that's from, let's call it right when COVID happened, probably to three or four or five, six months out. And then all of a sudden we had a huge boom of transaction volume because rates dropped significantly. So the investment markets were, were the velocity was, was absolutely outrageous. And then come 2022, there was a huge run up as far as the, the Fed's stance, as far as their, their, their constrictive policy on, on, you know, raising the Fed funds target rate. So that obviously has affected transaction volume into 2023 leading into 2024. You know, obviously this is with all with all these shifts that's affecting a variety of different verticals within the space. And obviously CMBS is no different. So if you were to had to kind of describe over the last, let's call it 12 to 24 months, what have been the most pronounced shifts that you've seen? And, you know, if you could share maybe some of the sectors that have been most affected as a result of that. Yeah. So it's really interesting. Um, 
what you laid out in 2020, we saw basically everyone pulled the emergency brake. Uh, when when everything went into lockdown in March of 2020, there was an immediate, you know, 60, 90 day complete stoppage of, of everything. Then things started to pick up a little bit towards the tail end of 2020. But from an issuance perspective, as soon as things went into lockdown, we didn't see a whole lot of new debt activity in the CMBS market. You fast forward to 2021, though, and it effectively set you know records in terms of new issuance. Like the the stimulus that the government put into the system couldn't get spent fast enough. Deals were trading like crazy, and so you started seeing an enormous run up in in issuance. And you know it's it's interesting, you know, being a lifelong career real estate guy, um, when you start seeing 1960s, 70s, 80s vintage multifamily all trading at three percent cap rates on trailing 12 NOI you kind of know you're at the peak of the bubble, you know, like that, that's where you're at in the cycle. And in 2021 that we got there pretty quick. So obviously inflation, macro inflation became a problem. The Fed raises rates. 22 was really interesting because I think people, um, you know, the first seven months of 22 was basically the same as 21. It was a continuation. So through January through um, July of 22, we were actually on pace to exceed 21 issuance, which was record setting. Uh, but when the Fed started raising rates from from August until the end of the year, there was basically no issuance. And then 23, nobody knew what to expect. And I think 23 was kind of a silver lining. Like issuance was down significantly. I mean, across the brokerage community, I mean, depending on which brokerage you you read their filings, transaction volume was down about 70% on average is kind of the, the central tendency there. If you look at the issuance markets across, you know, lenders, life codes, um, CMBS, banks, et cetera, they were all down somewhere. 50% or more. And CMBS was not immune to that. Like so we saw probably a 60% decline in overall issuance in 23 as compared to, to 21, 22. But given where we're at, 550 basis points worth of rate hikes in 15 months, unprecedented government stimulus trying to work its way through the system, and then this direct and, and immediate like corrective action by the Fed. The fact that we had issuance at all and at, at reasonable levels, I think, as I mentioned, is a silver lining for the industry. And I was down in Miami in the first part of January at Craft C, and there was a lot of optimism around, you know, what 2024 holds. Um, I think that's maybe been stymied a little bit with the Fed's kind of pause this last month um, where they they said we're not going to change rates. Heading out of December, Powell had kind of made a soft pivot and said, hey, we maybe are going to be a little more dovish in 24. If you look at the Fed dot plot, they're estimating rates coming down about 125 basis points. Everyone was heading into January feeling really good and optimistic. Maybe a little bit of cold water was poured on that uh, with the Fed's recent meeting and holding rate steady. But I think generally we survived the massive, massive disruption in, in the latter part of 22 and 23. Still had some you know, credit available. Capital was getting getting placed, even though it was at a reduced amount. And 24 probably is set up to be you know, as good as 23. And I'm thinking you know, slightly better. I've been on a couple of other shows where I said, Best case scenario, 2024 is, you know, 30 to 40 percent better in terms of issuance than what we saw in 2023. Yeah. And I think it's kind of to your point, uh, I think the uncertainty in the market is what caused the lack of issuance, because if you don't know what rates are going to be in, you know, a year or 12, even six to 12 months, it's really hard to make educated decisions on, you know, what you're going to purchase. So, you know, obviously 2023 was still kind of that let's we don't really know what the fed's going to be end up, end up doing and as we started getting into the later uh, tail end of the year and we started seeing a little bit more optimism in the marketplace i agree with you i think 2024 is set up to be definitely a better year than 23 and leading into 25 i think we'll probably have a really big resurgence which 
I know a lot of people who are listening to this podcast, I'm sure, are excited about. So regarding the, the makeup of, of these CMBS, uh, you know, packages. So, you know, you had mentioned 10-year terms, five-year terms, you know, the issuance uh, over time. One thing I'm curious about is, you know, what we've seen in a lot of the media outlets is this kind of doom and gloom when it comes to maturities of, of notes that are coming available. Obviously, you know, there's there's maturities of, of CMBS. I guess, have you seen or are analyzing with all the data you guys are, are, are reporting that you, there, there's going to be some concerns as far as certain property types and, and what that means for the, the broader market? Yeah, so it's it's interesting. Um, I've been saying this over the last month or so, and I, I, b- I believe it more and more each day. Headlines move faster than reality. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's easy to put a headline out there that says everything's falling apart, it's doom and gloom, it gets clicks, and and people want to see what's, what's going to happen, right? The reality is none of us really know what's going to happen. And like this term of maturity wall, it has a nice ring to it. You know, we've seen it, you know, brought up in, in discussion over the last 10 or 12 years when you see a spike or an increase in, in upcoming maturities. But if you look at 2023 to 2027, the rollover rate, like each successive year's maturity uh, wall is effectively the same. Like by 2027, it's slightly higher than the previous four years. But 23, 24, 25, 26 are all plus or minus a few percentage points in terms of, of maturity. So are there a large volume of loans maturing? Yes. Um, can we prove, you know, visually and mathematically that there's not some like huge influx of loans that are maturing this year relative to any other year? Yes. Um, so I think at some level, it just comes back to basic math. Like if you were financed at a 3%, you know, interest rate in your previous loan and you have to refinance into a 6% or 7% interest rate in the current environment, that's going to cause some problems just mathematically. The cost of the debt is significantly higher. And if you haven't seen commensurate growth at the NOI line, um, you're going to have a challenge refinancing without having to put some cash in. So it's not, but this is not something that's like new. It's not something that investors haven't dealt with in the past. We've just gotten a little bit um, spoiled with this super low zero interest rate environment for so long that some of the underlying fundamentals, you know, eroded. Um, if you look at where we're at with prevailing interest rates today, they're no higher today than they've been over any historical period of time. If you look at any 10 year period over the last 50 years, this is kind of what the historical norm is. So, you know, like, yes, office, that's that's a sector that the headlines probably have a little bit more truth to them because there's been a paradigm shift in how people work. I mean, people now prefer work from home. Um, even uh, companies like mine that has like an in-office policy, we're only in the office Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Um, so there's just some real legs to the fact that businesses probably aren't going to need as much office space. Some businesses aren't going to need any office space. Um, and employees don't want to make the commute. We've actually seen for the first time in history, urban office has higher delinquency than suburban office right now, which just cements that people don't want to make the commute into the urban core. Um, so there's th- those things are are challenging. And yes, like that is real. But again, it hasn't played itself out. It's not going to play itself out in real time. It takes time. So um, just to give some context. We have the great financial crisis. We had the run up in 07. GFC really started in 2008. We didn't hit peak delinquency in the GFC until July of 2012. That was at 10.34%. Right now, our overall delinquency rate is about 5, 6% in the CMBS universe. I would suggest that we're not going to see peak delinquency in the office sector or CMBS broadly until another 24, 36 months, just because 
people that have equity invested in properties are going to do everything they can to preserve their position. And so the distress just moves a lot slower than the headlines. Outside of office, though, there's a lot of really good green shoots. I mean, industrial continues to be incredibly strong. Data centers, incredibly strong. Um, retail had a huge re resurgence uh, coming out of COVID. Um, a lot of the talk about big box retailers closing down and the doom and gloom about re uh, retail has kind of abated and gone away. Like there's been a resurgence in community shopping centers, uh, neighborhood shopping centers. Uh, we see it every week and talk about it on our podcast. If you have a TJ Maxx or a Ross Dress for Less anchored shopping center, those things are trading at incredibly low cap rates and, and high prices per foot, even in today's environment. Multifamily is interesting. It's got a few cracks starting to rear its head. But really, 23 and 24 were the problem years for multifamily because depending on who you who you trust, you got about a million, million one new units being added in 23 and 24 across the U.S., which is the highest unit delivery count since the late 1970s. Um, so if we can just get through 24 on multi, get those units absorbed, people can just maintain cash flow. Um, 25, the supply constraint becomes real again. And guess what happens? There's going to be an, an increase in, in rent uh, power for the, the property owner. And multifamily comes out of this looking really, really good. Some distress in the interim. But generally speaking, like, look, I'm, I'm an optimist. I think commercial real estate has proven time and time again. It's a very resilient asset class. Um, sure, people get over levered and some people lose lose out in these downturns. But generally speaking, um, it's it's not going to be, I don't think, to the scale and to the, uh, the depths of despair that, that some people would make you believe on, on the whole. Absolutely. I, I would agree with you. And and also, you know, even more so that that, that related to lending. I mean, lenders don't necessarily want to take back some of these buildings either. So I would imagine, even though, you know, yes, a lot of these loans do have covenants that dictate that they have to meet certain performance metrics, but, you know, lenders still have to enforce those covenants and the likelihood of them enforcing those covenants, in my opinion, and I could also be completely wrong. I'm not a not no expert, but I would imagine that they're going to try their best to work out uh, what they can with the people that they can work out with. And obviously, there's going to be scenarios that it's just untenable and you have to do what you got to do. But if there's any silver lining or any opportunity to make sure that the, they can keep that loan you know, performing, I'm sure lenders are going to do everything in their power to make that a reality. Uh, because again, they're not in the property business. They're, they're in the business of issuing loans and collecting interest on, on those loans. So yeah, I agree. And it's it's interesting. I apologize. My light uh, just turned off again. Um, the um, the regulator has been the regulators have been really favorable to property owners, at least to this point where they've actually instructed lenders to work with borrowers instead of pursuing foreclosures and being very stringent with with the covenants. And so that's the one caveat I would say to kind of my general optimistic take is we still have some distress in the banking sector broadly, where you have a lot of lending institutions that are overexposed to CRE. We put out a couple of research pieces in the last month. You have some really sizable banks that have concentration ratios in CRE that exceed historical norms by a sum multiple. Um, and if, you know, like last week we had, um, you know, New York Community Bank Corp that came out and had significant charge-offs. Uh, their reserves went up significantly um, basically got rated down to a junk level overnight. If that starts to play out kind of like we saw in 23, where we had three bank failures very quickly, you know, that could, that could make me change my perspective broadly on the, on the macro CRE environment. But I think the fed has made it abundantly clear that they're going to do everything they can to make sure the banking sector stays solvent and people don't lose faith. 
as long as that happens and the regulator doesn't push lenders to be, you know, overly enforceful on their covenants, I agree with what you're saying that the incentive is to work with people. I mean, and the reality is this functionally obsolete buildings are functionally obsolete, whether they're owned by an individual or they're owned by the lender. Like it doesn't, if the lender takes it back, it doesn't magically recoup the value. Um, and so they have to be pragmatic in their approach to say, what's in the best interest of, of the person holding the note, whether it be a, a bank or in the CMBS world, what's in the best interest of the bondholders to say, how are we going to get the most value out of these assets? And sometimes it's just continuing to operate them, even if in the short term, it's a negative cash flow situation to try to get them retented, get them released and, and create a value add plan to, to increase the value. We've seen that with some of the regional super regional malls over the last 10 or 15 years where, um, you know, they've been written down several times, but they finally get to a basis point where they can operate profitably um, and sure the lenders have to take a haircut and, and they, they charge off some of that uh, loan balance. But ultimately it turns out to be the best case scenario of, of a bad, you know, worst case type of, of, of opportunity. Definitely. No, I couldn't agree more. So kind of looking forward, we, we've kind of alluded to it a little bit throughout this, this podcast episode, but what do you see, taking place in the debt markets and really we can even talk touch on commercial real estate as a whole over the next 12 to, to call it 24 months yeah so i think we're going to see a continuation of of a closing between the bid ask spread um reality is going to start setting in for some of these folks that are out over their skis so if you were you know somebody that unfortunately took out floating rate bridge debt at the peak of the cycle and you bought a 1970s vintage property and underwrote 12% rent growth for five years after value add. And, and you're not able to actually even complete the value add and or um, see the, the rent growth. Like there's going to have to be some tough decisions made on some of those assets. And you're going to start seeing sellers capitulate to the market. I mean, the reality is we all know in the commercial real estate, especially on the brokerage side, there's, you know, the, these external factors that actually overpower um, a property owner's ability to be successful. And so interest rates is, is one example. Inflation is another. And inflation for CRE takes the form of uh, expense inflation. So even though the Fed maybe says we're close to the 2% target for macro inflation, uh, we've done some analysis. If you're a multifamily operator um, or an office operator, your insurance cost per year has gone up on average somewhere between 15 and 30%, depending on what market you're in. And in some markets for this most recent renewal period, we're seeing increases over 100%. Guess what? Like you don't get to automatically pass that back to the tenants in every instance. And so there are a bunch of macro factors that are really going to start impacting some of these operators that were already on the fringe from a debt service or debt yield perspective. Um, but again, I think that's going to be contained to certain markets, to certain property types. Um, and just to give some context, the that short-term bridge debt financing that I mentioned. Um, there's been about $125 billion worth of issuance over the last five years in that type of a financing structure. That's not an inconsequential amount of financing, but it's not enough to disrupt the entire marketplace. Um, now, in some local communities where you maybe had a pocket of investors that came in and bought 15 or 20 properties in a, in a secondary or tertiary market, guess what? Like, There's going to be some real downturn in that local market for some period of time. But broadly, you're going to be fine. Office is its own thing. San Francisco, L.A., Chicago, over-officed. We've never torn down offices in the U.S. We have a ton of just functionally obsolete Class B and C office buildings 
that unfortunately have been traded up and up to where the price per square foot's just not supported by the income that they can generate. And so there's going to have to be a, a reality check there. And I don't know what form that takes. You've seen a lot of headlines around uh, conversion to residential. The reality is it just doesn't mathematically make sense in most instances. The cost to convert is significant. Um, the ability to have to execute on that type of a project is a, is an immense challenge and not a lot of people possess the skill set to do that. And it requires, in my opinion, some sort of a public-private partnership where you have tax abatements or other incentives to make developers willing to take on that risk. And at scale, we haven't seen any municipalities kind of step up to the plate. There's one or two across the U.S. that maybe have a handful of deals, but that's not going to be like a saving grace for that sector. And then, you know, whether you're a CCIM or you're in the appraisal business or whatever, like at some level, you have a highest and best use analysis at the site. So you have it's a four-step process, you know, legally permissible, physically possible, financially feasible, maximally productive. Well, what happens when you have a functionally obsolete office building, but that site's highest and best uses and as an office building? You're going to be really hard-pressed right now to say we're going to tear this old office building down to build a new office building, even though new office buildings are actually doing fairly well in this market. So I think that's going to be one that won't resolve itself in 12 to 24 months. You're looking at a much longer time horizon. And I know I've gone on a little bit here, but just one last point there. Uh, in the office sector, there's sublease availability across the U.S. at record levels. So it's like this shadow vacancy that's not showing up anywhere yet because effectively on a rent roll, that space is still leased and the tenant is still paying the rent, but they have the space available for sublease. And so you have this bifurcation between actual market level rent space and the sublease space the full effects of those sublease rents haven't been felt in the marketplace so if your contract rent for a you know a class b office in san francisco is say 60 dollars a square foot sublease rent might be 35 bucks a square foot for that space they're not they haven't felt that impact of the 35 dollar rent becoming the market rent but in reality there's such an influx of sub market or sublease availability that becomes the market rent in those submarkets. And so Minneapolis is another example, about 4 million square feet of sublease availability. If you just take the average lease size in those markets and divide it into the available sublease space, you're looking at an eight to 12 year type of time horizon, assuming normal absorption to get back to some, some level of stabilized occupancy and, and rental rate. Yeah, no, hundred percent. And that's, that's not, uh, that's not unique. To, like you said, it's not unique to just, it's, it's happening over all metros all across the country. I mean, I think here in Louisville, we have almost 800,000, yeah. you know, actively, you know, 800,000 square feet of, of vacant office space just in our CBD, obviously it doesn't factor in any suburban office and the, 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 the manifestation of the total vacancy hasn't occurred yet because of the fact that there's a lot of employers out there that are looking to potentially sublease their space or whatever else. So, I agree with you. I, I saw Louisville though. Didn't they? Didn't they just announce something at the city level where they're providing incentives? They, are, they yes, they so, are. So, so they, like that's so, that's actually a really good proactive move for them to kind of get ahead of that. Absolutely, yeah. They, so initially, what had happened is that they had offered kind of a out of a fund, and it's only a three million dollar fund now. But hopefully, over time, it continues to grow. But the the logic was, if you're a uh, a potential tenant to that wants to locate in downtown Louisville, which obviously you can't you know, be in downtown Louisville and just happen to relocate to another place in downtown Louisville, you have to actually be in that positive to downtown. They would offer you some form of tenant improvement up to $30 a foot. That footprint initially was 50,000. They just lowered it to 5,000. So that's obviously going to create a lot more velocity, uh, yeah. hopefully for tenants that want to locate downtown, which is something we definitely sorely need. Uh, yeah. And I think, again, 
public-private partnerships like that. When I, well, public public incentives, and then over time, hopefully, we can we can institute more public-private partnerships for either conversions or, as you alluded to, with the office buildings. You know, it's it's really un, un, unpopular oftentimes at the city level to say, "Hey, let's demo a building that could be that looks great to the exterior, but has you know obviously functionally obsolete and whatever else." So. You know, hopefully that sentiment be begins to change when we start realizing there's a lot of structures downtown that are just not being utilized efficiently. So, right. Yeah. And so one last question before we open to Q&A, we usually have time at the end where people can ask uh, particular questions. So if you guys are watching this live on all the different social platforms, feel free to type away in the chat box. We want to make sure we answer all of your questions. Uh, but quick question before we do that, Lonnie, one of the things I'm kind of curious about, obviously, as a contract can content creator myself i'm obviously very interested in hearing about your experience with starting trepwire and then ultimately you know how how you've the lessons you've learned through the process of actually doing so so i just thought i'd give it to you as an opportunity yeah so yeah it's that's a it's another great uh, question and it's it's really interesting i think it's a it's it's amazing to see how quickly content has become currency in today's market so if you look at real estate just generally over the last 50 years your competitive advantage in the marketplace was having some sort of proprietary relationship driven data stored type of, of dynamic. So it was like you're in the marketplace, you made friends with a lot of other brokers or owners or investors. You kept your little repository of list of, of those people to yourself. You didn't tell anyone what you did or how you did it. And it was like your competitive advantage in the market. We've seen a pretty significant shift recently where content becomes currency. People, realize you can get a much deeper level of, of reach, relationship, et cetera, through some of the social media, some of the podcasting, webinars, other types of things. And so what was fearsome, like pe what people were fearful of in the past, they've actually leaned into and realized it can be an economic driver for your business. And I think for us as a company, we've kind of gone through that same transformation where, you know, the data that we have and some of the insights and analytics that we provide are proprietary IP for us, but opening up a little bit of that to the marketplace and sharing that we have subject matter expertise and that we understand the market uh, participants and we we know the difference between a tenant rep and a landlord rep and how you can leverage data in each of those scenarios to get the best result. And if you're in on the investment sales side, like we have insight into how you can do that, the podcast for us really became an outlet that allowed us to vocalize that and make it real for people. And so, you know, starting off in 2020, where you're you know, getting 50, 100, 200 listeners an episode to now where we're averaging 10 to 15,000 listeners per episode per week. Um, it's been really remarkable. And the amount of interaction that we have with people um, has been incredible. I mean, we, we'll get a couple hundred emails a week from people that listen to the show that email in with questions or whatever. And again, it just creates opportunity for us to foster a deeper relationship with both our clients and non-clients. Um, I think the, the takeaways for us is consistency matters. Um, and I've seen this across all social platforms, not just with our podcast, but if you post frequently on your social, if you make yourself visible, you don't have to be selling anything. If you just make yourself visible, if you're willing to help people, guess what? Like the same core tenants that make you successful as a broker of making sure you have a business card and you pass them out and you talk to people and you lend a helping hand without trying to get paid on the first, first, uh, you know, point of contact. Those same type of, of values apply themselves across the social media spectrum. And we've really just tried to take it as a organic, you know, type of, of avenue for us. We haven't really, you know, we haven't hired anyone to help us with this. We haven't like 
tried to, to monetize this at scale. Um, this has been something that we've really just done as a, a way to get some of our stuff in the marketplace. And it's been super positively received. I mean, if I thought we'd be at a million two listens after a couple of years, it's it's just really incredible to see people's reaction. Um, but the fact that we haven't missed an episode um, over three years, like three plus almost four years at this point, um, that consistency matters. People want to see you or hear you on a consistent basis because then they can start building you into their routine, which is super important. Absolutely. And I'm sure you've probably noticed this, that there's almost a period of time where you're, you're going through the motions and you're, you're, you're producing content at a, at a re regular clip, but the, the, the listens may not be there or maybe the engagement quite isn't quite there. And then all of a sudden there's like an inflection point. Um, and I'm sure I, I listened to a podcast that you had with Bo that you referenced, you know, when the banking uh, thing, when, when things started becoming tumultuous in the banking mar markets, for whatever reason, you started, saw a huge spike in, in your listenership in that period of time. And obviously that's continued on uh, going forward. So uh, you never know when that opportunity or the, the growth will come. It's all about that consistency. So. Agreed. And it, and it, listen, it's, it's awkward for everybody to put yourself mm -hmm. out there and like get on camera, listen to yourself, talk, see your goofy smile on camera. Like we all have this vision of what we look like and sound like and whatever. When you start seeing yourself played back in, in a different form, it takes a little getting used to, but I would encourage people to push themselves in that area. Like if you've got 10, 15, 20 years experience in the marketplace, uh, people can benefit from your knowledge and experience. And if you're brand new to the space, you can bring some technical skills and a different perspective to the market that maybe some of the, you know, more seasoned folks in the industry uh, didn't get to experience because the technology wasn't the same when they started out. So, you know, I would just encourage people, even though it's a little bit awkward at first, yeah, and to your point, you can't be numbers focused immediately. Like the results don't come immediately. Um, but if you're consistent and you're adding good content and your motivation is really, I, I like that you said in my introduction that have the heart of a teacher. Like I, I, I try to live that out. And I think our, as a company, we do a really good job of that too, of just saying the money will come, the revenue will find itself. Um, but if you're adding value for people and you're creating relationships with, with people beyond the revenue, um, that's where you really find success. And so that's, that's something I would suggest for your listeners and others in the industry. It's just like building your business. It's just using technology and social media as, as a kind of a new form or new medium. Absolutely. And in addition to what you're doing already, because obviously as a broker, you know, we, we do have those conversations on a daily basis with our prospective clients. But again, our, our objective as, as brokers is to become an advisor. And part of being an advisor is being able to consult and, and provide in, in, insight into what, you know, the market's doing or any, any other multitude of different things that, that we do on a day to day. And so, you know, obviously these types of mediums are phenomenal opportunities for you to be able to showcase your expertise and over time, build that trust with whatever audience you're trying to target. So imagine if you're, if you're breaking into the space today, um, it used to be, you look at somebody's resume that have been in the business for 20 years, you couldn't fast track that experience. Like the only way for you to get the same level of knowledge was to go through your own 20 year endeavor. But now there's so much knowledge being shared real time from people that are in the business at scale that you can ramp up at a much more rapid pace and you can become, like to your point, an advisor, a counselor, uh, somebody that actually understands the nuance of your local market, of the property type, et cetera, at a pace that just wasn't available 20 years ago. Just because now you can log into a podcast, you can find five or six podcasts that talk specifically about the niche that you work in. And you can become an expert at that at a much more rapid pace. And so I hope people just take advantage of that because it is 
it's kind of a blessing relative to folks that have been in the, I've been in the business 20, 23, 24 years. And I can promise you when I started out, you really needed somebody that had been in the business for some time to kind of take you under their wing, to kind of get you in the fold and introduce you to people and kind of get your trajectory started. And now you can honestly start that same, you know, fast track trajectory just by creating an interesting social media account that, that shares what you're hearing in your meetings with prospects throughout the day or what you're seeing at conferences or reading in publications. It's, it's a really amazing, powerful tool that I hope people start to leverage more. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. So, uh, well, awesome, Lonnie. I, I want to make sure we have a little bit of time at the end of the, the meeting to be able to answer any questions outstanding from the audience. So if you guys are watching this right now on all the different social platforms, feel free to type away, uh, ask your questions. I know Lonnie will be more than happy to provide you all with some insight. So uh, we got a comment here from Anthony. So, hey, Anthony, good seeing you on the, on the live stream. Uh, thanks for the, the questions. Obviously, Lonnie is the 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 expert here. So I'm excited. Uh, it was great to have him on. So, all right. So in the meantime, we'll, while we wait some, for some questions to come in, Lonnie, is there any question in particular you wish that I would have asked or maybe some, you know, interesting trend that you're following that you think would be of value to the audience? I think it's uh, something that's, that's, that's not discussed enough is the insurance challenge that I mentioned earlier. So I think um, that's something if you're on the brokerage side, you should probably get a little bit of education around what's happening in your local market as it pertains to property insurance and the cost associated with that. So it used to be something that was just a coastal challenge if you're in Florida, California, Texas coast, et cetera. And we're starting to see that become much more pervasive across the U.S. where insurance as a line item is, is dramatically increasing. And you're also seeing insurers pull back in a couple of ways. One, a lot of them are not writing new policies. And two, when they do write policies, they're providing a lot less coverage than what you were getting in the past. So that's one of those things that as lenders start becoming more familiar with those challenges, that could be something that snags deals outside of just the, the, the cost and underwriting component, not having enough insurance or not being covered for enough climate related type of, of challenges is something that I think is going to be a challenge. And honestly, like a lot of you know, brokers in the market, like that's not really been on the radar because it's never been something that's risen to that level. But I definitely think over the next four or five years, you're going to start seeing that become more and more problematic for people. And so if you can get a head start on that, I think would be very advantageous for, for the industry. Um, I think broadly, I, we covered a pretty good swath of, of the marketplace. I think, you know, kind of, I think the optimism is required. And as brokers, you have to be optimistic by nature. You have to make a hundred cold calls before you get someone to take that meeting. You know, like that's just the nature of the business. Um, so I would view this as an opportunity. There's going to be distress in the market. Um, if you can become educated, informed, do your due diligence, be ready when those times come and they're going to come, uh, there's going to be some real opportunity to make a name for yourself and make some real, some real revenue. And so um, depending on where you play in the space, if there's anything I can do to help anyone that's on today, if there's anything that we can do as a company at TREP, um, I'm happy to share my contact info. Um, you know, we, we do a couple of monthly uh, webinars. One's called the Market Pulse webinar. Very similar to this, myself and my colleague, Stephen Bushbaum, we do a monthly webinar where we just kind of talk about current events in the marketplace. And sometimes we'll bring guests on. Last month, we had Jay Parsons from RealPage on, and we talked about multifamily. Um, and so... You know, if you want to see a little bit more of what we do beyond just the the audio version of the podcast, we do have our own you know webinar series that comes out every month, and um, we're accessible. I mean, like we, if you can't tell from this, I'm a real estate junkie. I love this stuff, 
And, um, you know, I'm happy to help however, whenever um, I can. Absolutely. And, and obviously, as you mentioned before, being educated about what's going on in the marketplace, not only on a national level, but also on a local level and following, you know, podcasts like your like Trepwire. Again, I highly encourage you guys to do so because you do guys do provide phenomenal amount of insights. And when you're having conversations with prospective owners or, or investors or whatever else, those are the data points and those are the, 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 the information you guys are going to need in order to make sure that you can showcase the, the value you have uh, in the marketplace. So um, definitely great advice. Yeah, and real estate is 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 local and sometimes hyper local um, in its in its markets. I mean, like the national headlines are very important and impactful just to kind of get a sense of, of macro trends. Like when I was in in Kentucky doing the market update with you guys, it was really interesting. You guys had an industrial panel that day at the uh, seminar, mm-hmm. and hearing the industrial brokers start talking about a little bit of the pullback in the large million square foot type of spec space development. And how, you know, that was making them a little bit nervous. They'd seen a slowdown in local absorption for those really large, you know, spec spaces. Um, and that their, you know, comfort zone was really in those 250 to 400,000 square foot industrial buildings that could be demised into smaller spaces. That's that type of local insight that you're not going to get from a, a national headline. Like industrial nationally, still on fire, still doing great. And it didn't mean that in, in Louisville that there was like some real retreat in the industrial space but there was definitely some some nuance from the participants there that were saying hey we've got enough data now locally to say you're not going to see a bunch of new million square foot spec spaces coming out of the ground here anytime soon like we've seen that there's been enough slowdown that we're going to pivot to a slightly different model and that's where that local knowledge and expertise really starts to come into play definitely i could agree more all right. So Philip asks, oh, he said, no questions. Thank you for the overview. So really the question is, do, do you believe that uh, the office market's going to take roughly 10 to 12 years to actually clear and, and and obviously get to a point where it's kind of stabilized at that point? Yeah. So I would say um, broadly, I think the market probably comes back quicker than that. But in those markets, LA, San Francisco, Chicago, uh, Minneapolis, that have had just such a huge influx of sublease space, you're looking at just mathematically, it's that 10 to 12 year mark. Um, but I, I'm also cognizant of the fact that guess what? If interest rates come back down, we, we go into a recession and rates go back to zero. Guess what? A lot of those things become a lot more marketable than they do now. So um, assuming that things stay on the similar trajectory, you're going to have office markets that are depressed. But at the same time, you have a lot of offices that are doing really, really well. If you're in a sub-institutional type of office market where maybe 50,000 square foot or less, um, predominantly leased by local tenants, those offices in a lot of places are actually seeing rent growth. And so it's, it's the broad brush doesn't always paint the right picture, um, but LA, San Francisco, uh, Chicago, Seattle, Atlanta, uh, DC, I didn't even talk about DC. DC is probably the biggest ticking time bomb right now, not just for politics, but in the office market too, in the sense that the number one tenant in the office market in DC is government space. Like government uh, tenants occupy the biggest swath of space. They've been super laissez-faire with uh, return to office. And as long as that attitude uh, you know, continues, you're going to see a huge decline in office valuations in the DC market. And what we started to see um, with our data is that decline in value for the office sector in DC specifically uh, has really trickled down, not just to retail, but also to multifamily. 
So mm-hmm. it's logical that retailers, you know, restaurants and other things that survive off of the foot traffic from people being in the city, going to the office, like that's a logical uh, reduction when, when there's no people in the office. The multifamily stuff is a little bit beyond what we've seen in other cities where DC office rents um, drove a lot of the high-end multifamily rents. So as people were in, in their offices and needed to be close to the, the buildings for work, they would pony up and pay an extra two or 300 bucks a month to rent that nice apartment that was walking distance to work. Now that they don't have to go to the office, they don't want to spend that extra three or 400 bucks a month on rent for an apartment. They're moving a little bit farther outside of town and you're starting to see some pullback on the class A multi in the urban core there in DC. And so it's just really interesting to see how interconnected a lot of these property types are where a decline in valuation for office doesn't just impact office negatively. It actually has trickle down effects across the other asset classes. Definitely. Oh, so those are some great insights. All right. So we have one more comment. Uh, hear him. Uh, just again, he thanks you for the great insights you've shared uh, thus far on the podcast. Uh, and then I would uh, I'd second that as well. So, all right, Faye. All right. So Faye asks, do you have an insight on industri- the industrial market in the, in the Mid-South? So Atlanta, Memphis, distribution hubs, et cetera. Yeah. So I think industrial, you know, as we mentioned earlier, is probably, if not the strongest, one of the strongest asset classes even today. There's definitely been a little bit of a slowdown in some of that spec development. I mean, Amazon effectively did 20, wor- 20 years worth of new spec development in about a five-year period. So with them announcing about 18 months ago, they were going to start pulling back. You've seen a little bit of that ground up stuff slow down some. Um, but outside of that, there's there's this insatiable appetite for industrial. And that last mile distribution uh, concept is only going to continue to grow, especially in markets that have positive net in migration. So if you have people moving there and there's more rooftops being built, um, that last mile distribution becomes even more needed. The biggest challenge for industrial right now, there's there's two challenges. One, if you have uh, long-term leases in place that don't allow you to get those rents to market, that's problematic for current owners. And we're, we're starting to see that at scale. On the office sector, if you're trying to refinance your loan, the lender wants to see a longer weighted average lease term because they have nervousness around that sector. On the industrial side, if you have a really long weighted average lease term and those leases only allow for a 3 or 5% kicker every year, and you've seen your market see rent growth of 25% in the last six years um, or four years or three years, you're locked into those leases. That's a net negative for the the value. Um, So that's something that's kind of interesting to kind of see play out in real time, like newly developed spec space are capturing 100% of that available rent return. Whereas if you have long-term leases in existing buildings, you're locked in and that's, that's, there's upside, but at some point that upside, because the market's going to slow down, you're not going to realize it. And the other challenge for industrial and in those markets, maybe not as much, because I don't think they've seen such an explosion like you've seen in in some other markets, Virginia, Texas, et cetera, is just this uh, the, the nimbyism concept of how local municipalities have really started to push back on any more warehouse or distribution type of development. So it's amazing. You fly into any major city in the U.S. now, it's not uncommon that you just see these huge industrial buildings, flat roof not just around the airport, but really dispersed around the communities. And and I've seen and talked with a lot of folks in the last, you know, six, eight months where they're having a lot more difficulty getting things through pl- uh, through planning and zoning um, for industrial development, because a lot of the neighborhoods have said we're not we're not wanting any more industrial. So that's kind of an external factor that probably hasn't reared its head yet. 
Um, but that would be something I'd keep an eye on. Outside of that, I think both those markets have potential to continue to grow. Um, and there's a lot of unrealized um, value in some of those long-term leases. Yeah, most certainly. Yeah, in Memphis, I, is it, I believe, is it FedEx or UPS? I can't remember what, what's headquartered in Memphis, but... They've got a pretty yeah. That's that. I, I you know that one is that's kind of a to maybe take a little contrarian take. A UPS announced last week twelve uh, yeah, thousand layoffs, right? Mm -hmm. So, yeah. you know, could that if that becomes systemic, if that becomes something where all of those carriers start laying people off at that type of of number, maybe that does cool down the sector some. Um, but we haven't seen that happen yet, and I think UPS is a little bit unique in the sense that they just did a, a large labor agreement about a year ago where their their fixed cost went up significantly with the labor unions and so kind of necessitated the uh, the layoffs but uh, that that would be an interesting wrinkle especially if they have a higher concentration to one of those uh, in those markets definitely all right we'll give it about a minute left before we kind of round out we're, we're running up right on the hour so all right if you guys have any questions any more questions feel free to type away in the chat box we'll give you about 15 to 20 more seconds, and then we'll go ahead and round it out. Okay. Well, it looks like you've answered all the questions, Lonnie. First off, you know, thank you so much for taking your time today. I know you're extremely busy. You're always traveling. I, I always see you on LinkedIn posting about all the different places you're traveling to. So again, we just really appreciate the time you've taken to be with us today. So if people want to learn more about you, you know, get connected on different social platforms. How, what's the best way to be able to do that? Yeah, so I'm on on Twitter, which we now call X, I guess. I still call Twitter. I'm a rebel. Um, mm -hmm. I'm just at Lonnie, L-O-N-N-I-E underscore C-R-E. So check me out on Twitter. Uh, if you want to connect on LinkedIn, obviously I'm, I'm on there as well. If you want to email me, it's it's pretty simple. It's just Lonnie underscore Hendry um, at trep.com. So it's, uh, as my name is spelled out on the screen here, um, at uh, trepp.com. And uh, yeah, happy to connect. I definitely appreciate the opportunity to come on and talk uh, real estate with you guys. And um, looking forward to maybe doing this again in the future. Absolutely. No, I'd love to do this again in the future. And and really, I, I think, again, we just appreciate, you know, all the insights shared. Um, we'll make sure to include all the different, uh, uh, you know, handles and emails and everything you've just described in the show notes. If you guys are watching this on YouTube, it will be in the show notes. And if you guys listen to us in a podcast format, whether that's Spotify, Apple Podcasts, really any other medium, we'll be in the show notes as well. So again, Lonnie, thank you so much for your time. We obviously greatly appreciate you stopping by. If you guys like this channel, please like and subscribe. It does make a huge impact on our ability to reach a broader audience. Along with that, if you guys uh, in love uh, enjoy this content, we do this every other week where we invite speakers who talk about a variety of different concepts pertaining to commercial real estate. So continue to come back, continue to engage, and we look forward to seeing you guys next time. So thanks again so much for tuning in. And we'll see you all next time. Thank you.